0: In this quiet place with you I bow before your throne I bear the deepest part of me To you and you alone I keep no secrets For there is no thought You have not known I bring my best and all the rest do you and lay them down You only with God. Just Amen. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, all that is in me is yours completely. I want to love you with all my heart. May that be our sincere and earnest prayer that you have all of us, Lord, our whole hearts. We never want to live or love or serve half-heartedly. Father, we want to give you our all. Speak to us now, Lord, and fill us with your word that you have prepared for this very moment. We thank you for your presence, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to tell you a little story, of course. In the winter of 2003, residents of the relatively new community in Sun City community was called Sun City, in Summerlin, Nevada, they started noticing something in common among their 1,400 homes. With each rainfall, they started noticing stronger smells of mildew in their newly constructed homes. It got worse and worse as the winter progressed, and the rain continued to fall. And over time, they began to visibly spot mold growing on their interior walls. City inspectors were called in, and they verified what homeowners had grown to suspect. A small five-inch piece of metal called a Weep's Creed was not put in place by Del Webb, the home builders, when the homes were constructed. Now, a Weep's Creed, and I had to look this up, what they do is they keep moisture, out of drywall paneling and without this protection the water soaked into the the stucco and and mold quickly developed in the walls so they they measured a lot of the mold and and much of it was determined to be toxic mold so 1400 homes in the senior community there had to be evacuated followed shortly by a 70 million dollar lawsuit filed by 1400 homeowners it was the biggest Construction Defect Lawsuit in Nevada's History. So when they came in and assessed the construction of these homes, it was discovered that so much was done right. was done correctly. The homes, for the most part, were well-built. They used proper materials, for the most part. They followed codes, mostly, for most everything. But what happens? And, and this is inevitable, as some corners were cut. Shortcuts were taken, right? Most notably, the absence of the Weeps' Creed. And the reasons might have been real ones. They were behind schedule. They were over budget. Whatever the reasons were, we, we can't look back and say that the homes were well built. Because of the one flaw. One missing five-inch piece of metal in the walls... Turned the entire construction effort into a failure. All the good was undone by one bad step, one shortcut. It was half-hearted. Plain and simply, it just wasn't done right. And anything done in a half-hearted manner will always catch up to us. There were measurable consequences. Things continued to progress on a downward spiral. 1,400 homes had to be repaired. And the half-hearted effort ended up costing the home builder millions and millions of dollars. Half-hearted. It wasn't all bad, but it wasn't all good. My oldest son told me the other day when I came home and asked him, how were you? Were you good today? He said, I was a little bad. (laughs) I said, you know what? A little bad is still bad. Half-hearted. Not all good, not all bad. What do we think of when we hear the term half-hearted? Don't care enough. Going through the motions. Trying to take shortcuts, not all in. Split allegiances. Dueling priorities. The Bible describes this half-hearted effort or half-hearted state as lukewarm. Lukewarm. And it has much to say about the dangers of being lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. We think of the church in Laodicea. We, we read this earlier. We heard it, heard it in our Revelation seminar earlier in the year. The church that God spoke to through John in Revelations 3, 15, and 16. He said, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm... Neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. God doesn't mix words when it comes to a lukewarm heart. Why? What's the great danger of such a state? Well, remember that construction effort. Would those homes ever have gotten better on their own without someone stepping in to repair the damage? Mm-mm. No. No. Much like that half-hearted construction effort, a lukewarm heart is just a starting place. It's a starting point of a downward spiral which leads to a cool heart and eventually to one that's stone cold and dead. Well, we're gonna look today at one of Scripture's great warnings and illustrations of this inevitable spiral in our text. You know, I love, I love happy Bible stories. David defeating Goliath. Triumphant victories. Underdog victors come from behind wins. Happy endings. Feel good Bible stories. I love those. This is not one of them. It's a sad story, but that's not to say that it isn't inspirational. Because I found that the saddest Stories often come with the greatest lessons, greatest warnings, and therefore they become the greatest inspirations for what not to do. So turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 25. We're going to look at this portion of scripture. You can look up at your video screens as well. But first, for a bit of context, when Solomon died, King Solomon, David's son, somewhere between 926 and 922 B.C., there were 12 tribes of Israel. The 10 northern tribes refused to submit to his son, Rehoboam. They revolted. And so from this point on, the kingdom was split. There would be two kingdoms, two kingdoms of Hebrews. In the north, there was Israel, and in the south, Judah. And the Israelites formed their capital in Samaria, And the Judeans kept their capital in Jerusalem. And it's a bit tricky to keep this straight. The southern kingdom of Judah had all the things we associate with Israel. Jerusalem is there. The temple is there. The kings are from the the line of David. They're his descendants, the bloodline of Christ. Everything we associate with Israel was in Judah. Judah. And the northern kingdom had none of these things but kept the name Israel. So these kingdoms remained separate states for almost 200 years. And it would be the last time until 1948 that there would be an organized, recognized nation of Israel. Eventually, they'd both be conquered and every Hebrew would be scattered across the globe. And it reminds us when they first asked for a king, remember when the, the Hebrews first asked for a king in the book of Judges, they were told that only God was to be their king. When they approached Samuel the prophet and they told him they wanted a king, he said that their desire for a king was an act of disobedience and they would pay a high price if, if they established a monarchy. And did the consequences happen? Of course. They always do. God's warnings are never veiled threats. Pay attention to them. The Israelites forced their way. They chose a king for themselves. And history would bear out Samuel's warnings. So here we are now in Judah. What we're going to read in 797 BC. And there's a new king, a new Judean king. Here we go, starting in verse 1. Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Jehoadun. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. That's the very definition of a lukewarm heart, isn't it? And it's the essence of Amaziah's condition at the start of his reign. Let's see why. Verse 3. After the kingdom was firmly in his control, he executed the officials who had murdered his father, the king. Yet he did not put their children to death, but acted in accordance with what is written in the law, in the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded, parents shall not be put to death for their children, nor children be put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Okay, so here we are. The kingdom of Judah had been through some rocky times. King Amaziah took the throne after his father was murdered. In fact, the the last three rulers before him were all murdered. So he had good reason to be looking over his shoulder as he took the throne. So Amaziah had his father's murderers executed, but he did not execute the sons of those assassins. That was a tactic used by most monarchs as a security measure, but Amaziah was obeying the law of Moses, which said that sons were not to be punished for their father's sins. In other words, so far... Amaziah did what was right in God's eyes. So far, so good. Let's keep reading, verse 5. Amaziah called the people of Judah together and assigned them according to their families to commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds for all Judah and Benjamin. He then mustered those 20 years or older, 20 years old or more, and found that there were 300,000 men fit for military service, able to handle the spear and shield. He also hired 100,000 fighting men from Israel for 100 talents of silver. Okay, so what happened here? Next, we see Amaziah preparing to attack the bordering nation of Edom. He had a good-sized army, 300,000 strong. But in order to beef it up, he hires 100,000 mercenaries from Israel. These were big, tough, Professional warriors. But the problem was that Israel had become unfaithful to God. God's favor was no longer with them. And to make an alliance with an ungodly nation was against God's laws. So, verse 7 what happens? But a man of God came to him and said, Your Majesty, these troops from Israel must not march with you, for the Lord is not with Israel. Not with any of the people of Ephraim. Ephraim was the house, the lineage of the kings of Israel. Even if you go and fight courageously in battle, God will overthrow you before the enemy, for God has the power to help or overthrow. How thankful. How thankful we should be for men and women of God who dare to come to us and steer us the right way. Who warn us. Who give us the right perspective when we're not thinking straight? Who remind us of God's faithfulness and providence? Who encourage us to obey even when it's difficult? The message was clear Amaziah, don't, don't mix with this world. You were set apart. Don't go to this world for help. Your help doesn't come from any source in this world, your help comes from God and God alone. Verse 9. Amaziah asked the man of God, but what about the hundred talents I paid for these Israelite troops? The man of God replied, the Lord can give you much more than that. So Amaziah dismissed the troops who had come to him from Ephraim and sent him home, sent them home. They were furious with Judah and left for home in a great rage. Why? Because Beyond their pay, there were spoils they could have had from war. So their their pay was just a small part of the deal. So the prophet reminds Amaziah, it's God who has the power to help or overthrow you. Get rid of those mercenaries, or you'll lose God's favor. Amaziah pays attention, but he can't help but hedging a little bit. After all, he paid the mercenaries up front. He didn't want to lose his investment, and honestly, he felt he needed the additional help. And this, this friend, is the, is the first sign of trouble, the first hint at the condition of this king's heart. Amaziah begins his reign with a lukewarm heart. He's preparing for battle, but, but instead of trusting God, he gets some backup. Lord, I, I trust you, but just in case, You don't come through for me. I'm going to come up with my own solution. That's not trust. Lord, I believe with all my heart that you will come through for me. But just in case, I'm going to have a backup plan. That's not trust. That's faithlessness plus lip service. It's easy to say we trust God. But when the rubber meets the road, when the decisions have to be made, when the sacrifices have to be taken, do we? Do we trust him enough to take our hands out of our situation and say, God, take over. It's yours. And wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm just helping God out. God doesn't want your help. God doesn't need your help. Your help simply reveals that you don't think God can come through for you on His own. Trust God enough to have no plan B. Amen. He's our plan A through Z. He is our enough, right? Nothing more is needed. Are you trying to help the Lord out in finding solutions for your life? In your job situation, in your search for a spouse, in your marriage In the lives of your children, is your faith so weak in Him that you feel you need to control things, to steer things, to make things happen? Friend, that's the first sign of a lukewarm heart. When we don't trust God enough to give Him full control of our circumstances, something is starting to go wrong. Red flags. So Amaziah does what's right on the outside. If you're an outsider looking at this king's life, you say, he did well. He does what's right on the outside, but his question reveals the alarming condition of his heart. Wait, 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 wait. He did let the mercenaries go. He he, he did the right thing. He did obey. Shouldn't, Shouldn't he get some credit for that? Yeah, he did obey. He did the right thing, but it was reluctant obedience. It's still obedience, and it's still the right thing to do, but reluctant obedience is always accompanied with a question. Why? Why the reluctance? What's so important to you that it's delaying, postponing, standing in the way, or acting as a hurdle in the way of you obeying God immediately? God doesn't want our outward obedience covering an inward, grumbling heart. It's not enough to just look good or act good. God wants us to be good. He cares about the condition of your heart. I want to obey you, Lord, but the cost is is too great. Here, the reason was money. What is it for you? Lord, Lord, I want to obey you, but I can't risk this relationship, I can't let go. I can't risk this friendship. Lord, I want to obey you, but I need this job. Lord, I want to obey you, but what will people think of me? Lord, I, I can't handle the ridicule. Lord, I want to obey you, but... But what? Whatever comes next. Whatever the reason is, it means you're prioritizing something ahead of God in your life. Your image... Your job, your relationships, your will, your stubbornness. Obedience to the Lord should be the highest priority in our lives. Now it's true, Amazai was talking about a good deal of money here. 100 talents would be about 4 tons of precious metal. And at current silver prices, it'd, it'd be over half a million dollars. But let me say this. There's no price too high to pay to obey God. There's no price too high to pay to obey God. A few years back, I was asked to sing a few good men at a men's meeting. And the speaker was a man by the name of Napoleon Kaufman. Now, I had known of Napoleon Kaufman. I had never met him, but I got to hear his story that night. He was drafted by the Oakland Raiders in 1995. And he became a a star running back in the NFL. Over the course of six years, he became a star. He was productive, he was making millions of dollars, he had it all. Or so it appeared on the outside. He was living the dream. In 2000, six years into his career, he was in excellent health. He was on top of the world. He had, a, 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 he had just signed a new contract a, a couple of years earlier, making millions of dollars. And he felt God leading him to walk away. And he said, I couldn't live with myself that I spent Sundays entertaining people instead of giving them the gospel. So the Lord told him, Walk away. You're going to be a minister, you're going to start a church. And he did. And people around him said, Napoleon, you're crazy. You're on top of the world. You're living every kid's dream. Millions of dollars. You're making millions of dollars a year that you're going to give up and you still have a long career ahead of you. He said, I didn't care. I could live with walking away from millions of dollars. I couldn't live disobeying the Lord. So he did. He walked away. And he started a church, and praise God, he's been successful. Amaziah's heart was set on earthly material concerns. But the prophet redirects him. Redirects his mind to focus on God. The man of God said, The Lord can give you much more than that. Whatever you sacrifice to obey God, don't you think he can recompense? Whatever you give up, walk away from, let go of in obedience to God. Can he not give you back tenfold? Of course he can, and he does. There's no price too high to pay to obey God. Outwardly, this man, King Amazai, he did the right thing. Inwardly, his heart was just starting that downward spiral to a very bad place. You know, to everyone around us, we can appear to do the right things. We come to church, we tithe, we even serve. Everyone sitting here around you today thinks you're so godly and and faithful, but your heart can tell a different story, can't it? Your doubts speak a different tale. There's a classic gospel song called How About Your Heart. It was made famous by the Blackwood Brothers in the 50s. It asked, friend, how would you feel? if your heart were made with a window on each side, so that all could see not just outward charm, but detect if inward harm. The chorus said, people often see you as you are outside. Jesus really knows you, for He sees inside. How about your heart? Is it right with God? That's the thing that counts today. It's the deepest question you can be asked Ask it of yourself today. What's the spiritual condition of my heart? If you're not trusting God enough to stay out of His way, if you're prioritizing something ahead of immediate obedience to Him, something's wrong. Red flags. Your relationship with God is half-hearted. Your heart is in a lukewarm state. And it's the very condition we find Amaziah in. And left unchecked, left alone, it leads to an inevitable downward spiral. Let's keep reading. Verse 11. Amaziah then marshaled his strength and led his army to the Valley of Salt where he killed 10,000 men of Seir. Verse 12. The army of Judah also captured 10,000 men alive, took them to the top of a cliff and threw them down, so that all were dashed to pieces. Meanwhile, the troops that Amaziah had sent back and had not allowed to take part in the war raided towns belonging to Judah, from Samaria to Beth Horon. They killed 3,000 people and carried off great quantities of plunder. You remember them, those 100,000 soldiers, the mercenaries that he'd hired? They ended up getting paid. They didn't have to fight for Amaziah. And they wound up turning on the king and attacking his own cities, killing 3,000 people while the Judean army was away at war. The plans we make outside of God's will always seem to come back and bite us, don't they? Verse 14. When Amaziah returned from slaughtering the Edomites, he brought back the gods of the people of Seir. He set them up as his own gods, bowed down to them and burned sacrifices to them. I had to read this at least six times to make sure I got this right. Amaziah obeys God. He dismisses the mercenaries, about 25% of his entire army. And with God's help, with God's blessing and his power, he wins a decisive military victory. He rounds up all the idols of the fallen enemy. And I'm waiting to read that he burns them, he destroys them, he throws them off a cliff. No! He sets them up in his city and worships them. What? He had just won a great victory. Obviously from God's hand. He has every reason in the world to be praising God and God alone, but instead he turns to idols. How does it happen? How does that happen? He appeared to be running a good race. On the outside, ah, that's the problem. We can never judge a book by its cover. Inside, his heart had gone from lukewarm to downright cool. And it can easily happen to us, can't it? God has blessed us with so much. He's given us so many blessings. He's proven his faithfulness and providence time and time again. He's come through for us. And instead of turning our hearts to praise him, instead of thanking him by serving him with all of our time and efforts and talents, we're busy with the idols of our lives. No, no, no. Not me. No idols here. Oh, it happens. Take a look at how much time in your life you invest in your career compared to the time you spend on your walk with Christ. Analyze your free time. Take a look at your hobbies. Take a look at your screen time. Take a look at your ambitions. Take a look at the factors that drive your life decisions. Still think there are no idols in your life? the most accurate measure of a heart that's cool to God is how our time is spent. What are you busy chasing? God has given us so much, and he has immeasurably more for us, more in store. And here we are chasing idols, chasing the frivolities of this world, or worse, chasing sin. C.S. Lewis said, and I love this, he said, indeed, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an arrogant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's true, isn't it? It's our human nature. We're happy making mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine more. There is more. Friend, don't settle. Don't settle for chasing the emptiness of this world when God has so much more planned for your life. Must have been shocking. Shocking for people around Amaziah who thought of him as a godly, God-fearing, obedient king to see him worshiping idols. But it shouldn't shock us knowing that his heart was already lukewarm to God. Once you start there, it's inevitable. If we don't make things right, the descent is inevitable. Keep reading. Verse 15. The anger of the Lord burned against Amaziah and he sent a prophet to him who said, why do you consult the people's gods which could not save their own people from your hand? While he was still speaking, the king said to him, have we appointed you an advisor to the king? Stop! Why be struck down? So the prophet stopped but said, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. Amaziah's heart makes the inevitable journey from lukewarm to cool to stone cold. God's prophet points out to Amaziah that what he's done is not only wrong, immoral, against God's will, but just plain stupid. If your army beat their army, isn't that proof positive that your gods are better than their gods? But Amaziah's heart was not turned to God. He'd been influenced by the godless culture around him. See, in those times, <clears throat> excuse me, people believed that when a nation won a battle, it was not because their gods were stronger, but because the losers' gods abandoned them and moved to the other side. So by worshiping the idols, Amaziah was thanking them for helping out with his victory. As if the one true God could not have done it without them. As if those other gods were anything more than wood and metal and materials. It's what other victorious conquerors did at the time. After defeating their enemies. He was just following the times. Been there? Just following the crowd, the culture, the socially acceptable fads. Friend, who's setting the standard in your life? your friends, reality television, Facebook, your coworkers, your unsaved relatives. Well, I'm just following along because I don't want to stand out. Look, I just want to fit in. I don't want to make waves. You don't want to stand out. Christ stood out for you, didn't he? He stood on that cross and suffered unbearably for you. Is it too much to stand up for Him? To do what's right, despite what others around you will think, despite what they're doing, despite what they will say or do, despite the fads, despite the times, despite what's socially and culturally acceptable. Follow the standards set by God, not the world around you. We are in this world, but not of it. We serve a higher power and we strive toward a higher standard. What's most disturbing about Amaziah is that one minute he appeared to be serving God and the next minute he was blatantly bowing down to idols. Have you ever seen a descent like that? Yeah, we, we have. And since all we can see is the outward appearance, these things seem shocking to us. But if we could see the heart, if we could see what God sees, we would see what's happened. We'd see a heart that's moved from lukewarm to cool to stone cold. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. Remember how the Scripture summed up the condition of his heart. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. That's where it starts. Obedience is important, but it's not enough. God is after a heart that is fully devoted to him. Amaziah did what was right initially, but he never put his whole heart into it. He started out with faith, but it was a flabby, lukewarm faith. Even after he sinned by worshiping idols, God wasn't done with him. He was still chasing him in his mercy. He still reached out to him, gave him yet another chance. But look how he responds to the prophet's warnings. While the prophet was still speaking, the king said to him, Have we appointed you an advisor to the king? Stop. Stop. Why be struck down? Why is it that the first thing we do when our hearts turn cold to God is turn on his people? We do that, don't we? Who are you to tell me what to do? Mr. Holier Than Thou, who made you my advisor? we don't want to hear about godly decisions we don't want to hear about godly lives we don't want to hear from anyone about what God wants us to do I'm doing things my way now I'm steering the ship now I don't need advice I don't need opinions I don't want counsel don't even say another word to me that's what Amaziah did you want to take your spiritual temperature How do you handle godly counsel? How do you handle criticism? How do you handle correction? How do you treat the people God has placed in your life to shepherd you? The rest of the story goes downhill fast. Verse 17. After Amaziah, king of Judah, consulted his advisors. Oh, he's got new advisors now. He sent this challenge to Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, King of Israel, come, let us face each other in battle. But Jehoash, king of Israel, replied to Amaziah, king of Judah, a thistle in Lebanon sent a message to a cedar in Lebanon. Give your daughter to my son in marriage. Then a wild beast in Lebanon came along and trampled the thistle underfoot. You say to yourself, you have have defeated Edom, and now you're arrogant and proud, but stay home. Why ask for trouble and cause your own downfall and that of Judah also? Amaziah, however, would not listen. For God so worked that he might deliver them into the hands of Jehoash because they sought the gods of Edom. So Jehoash attacked. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced each other at Beth Shemesh in Judah. Judah was routed by Israel and every man fled to his home. Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah. Then Jehoash brought him to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate, a section about 400 cubits long. He took all the gold and silver, all the articles found in the temple of God that had belonged in the care of Obed-Edom, together with the palace treasures and the hostages, and returned to Samaria. Amaziah lived for 15 years after the death of Jehoash. And as for the other events of his reign from beginning to end, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel? From the time Amaziah turned away from following the Lord, they conspired against him in Jerusalem. And he fled to Lachish. But they sent men after him to Lachish and killed him there. He was brought back by horse and was buried with his ancestors in the city of Judah. What a sad ending to a sad life. The cold hearted king lurches from one disaster to another. First, he picks a fight with the northern nation of Israel. He gets trounced. The Israelites capture him, they plunder the temple and the palace, they take all the treasure that he so cared about. After 15 years of captivity, Amaziah is released. He returns to his ruined country of Judah. But after a while, he's chased from his own palace and assassinated by his own people. 1 Corinthians 10.6 tells us that these Old Testament accounts were recorded examples for us. So we need to ask ourselves, what can we learn from Amaziah's example? If nothing else, it teaches us that a lukewarm heart is a dangerous thing. If left unattended, it will ultimately grow stone cold. When we talk about the heart, we, we usually think of our feelings, but when the Old Testament speaks of the heart, it includes not just our feelings, but our mind, our will, our entire spiritual nature. It embodies the whole life of a person. It was said in Deuteronomy 6.5, Jesus repeated it in Matthew 22.37, You shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It doesn't matter what you say. Your statements of faith, however grand and glorious they may be, they don't matter if your heart is lukewarm to God, if you're living half-hearted. Are you there today, friend? Can you say you're all in, wholehearted? Or is there indifference there? Is there apathy there? Listen to this prayer someone published. The Prayer of a Half-Hearted Christian. I love thy church, O God. Her walls before me stand. But please excuse my absence, Lord. This bed is simply grand. A charge to keep I have. A God to glorify. But Lord, don't ask for cash from me. The glory comes too high. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? Yes, though I seldom pray or read, I still insist I am. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, others, Lord, should do their part, but please don't count on me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. O loud, my hymns of praise I bring, because it doesn't cost to sing. Does that sound all too familiar? We'll give God our lip service. We'll give Him our words. We'll we'll even show up at church. But when it comes to sacrifice, to obedience, to life decisions, to anything that costs something of ourselves, we stop short, half-hearted, lukewarm. If your heart is lukewarm, dear friend, tend to it now. Take a long walk with God. Pour out your heart to Him. Place your heart back in his hands. Don't let it grow cold. It's a downward spiral with an inevitably tragic end. The good news, and there always is with Christ, the good news today is that it's not too late. It's not too late to course correct, to stop the bleeding, to put the brakes on the downward spiral. If God is convicting you today, let him. Don't fight it. Don't ease your conscience. Don't hold back your tears. Don't justify your life. It doesn't matter what happened in your past. It doesn't matter who did what to you. It doesn't even matter what you did before. God is trying to reach you today. And all that matters is your decision. Don't let anything stand in your way. How merciful He is for giving us another chance. Time and time again. He loves you too much to leave you where you are. Take His hand of mercy and come to Him. If you've never given Him your heart, accept His free offer of salvation today. Kneel at the cross and see the crucified Christ who died for you. And dear believer, if you've taken that journey from a heart on fire for Christ, to one that's lukewarm, or cool, or cold. That hand is still reaching out for you today. Take it, reach back, and reach out for His grace. See that cross anew, remember what it took to rescue you. He's still there. Look into those eyes of mercy. Let your heart be stirred once again. It's not too late. God was still reaching out to Amaziah, Till his dying breath. How sad that his life was summed up in this one sentence He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. That was his epitaph. That was the summary of his life. What will be said of yours? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today heart in hand and ask you to rekindle the fire of our hearts. We thank you for the warnings you give us. We see the examples before us and we come running back to you, Lord. We're done with half-hearted living. We're done with indifference. We're done with apathy. We want to live sold out for you. We want to live and serve and love with all our hearts, Father. Give us your strength to put behind us every hindrance and encumbrance and distraction in our lives. We bring to the foot of the cross the sins that have ensnared us and filled our time and our minds and our efforts. Forgive us, Father, and fill us anew with a resolve to live only for you proclaiming your message of mercy and pursuing your kingdom of grace. We love you. And we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.